Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we move from learning about manuscripts and textual criticism to actually doing textual criticism. I've chosen two well-known corruptions to illustrate the process of textual criticism, 1 Timothy 3.16 and 1 John 5.7. In each of these cases, scribes have altered the text of Scripture and we have the manuscript evidence to show exactly what happened. Here now is episode 340, part 11 of our Bible class, Two Corrected Corruptions. There's so much of what we've been looking at over the past few weeks that is going to come together. I mentioned last time the movie Karate Kid with Mr. Miyagi and whacks the floor and he throws a punch and suddenly the kid realizes, wow, I can block, I can, I can do, I can fight. And so this is hopefully the moment for you where this happens. And so if you haven't watched previous episodes, this would really be a good time for you to do that. Uh, especially episodes 6, 7, and 8, because that's where we talk about the papyri, the unseals, the minuscules, the lectionaries, the ancient translations, and the quotations from the church fathers. All of this is going to come into play today. And then last episode, we looked at textual criticism and how it is that scholars work together the different manuscripts to arrive at the initial reading. So today, we're going to capitalize on this. We're going to look at, first of all, 1 Timothy 316. It says in the King James Version on the left side here, this is the version updated in 1769, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. It's based on Robert Estine's 1550 Greek New Testament, also called the Textus Receptus. This is an English translation based on that Greek. And then on the right side here, we have the American Standard Version of 1901, which is based on Westcott and Hort's 1881 Greek New Testament. And it reads, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. Do you see the difference here? There it is. On the left, we have God was manifest in the flesh. On the right, we have he who was manifested in the flesh. Kind of a significant difference, wouldn't you say? Now, nearly all versions of the 20th and 21st centuries read like the right column here, like the ASV, the American Standard Version of 1901. So the question is, what's going on? The word God in the manuscripts is represented by really just two letters with a bar over it. And those two letters, theta, sigma, happen to look just like omicron sigma, except a theta and an omicron differ only by a line through the theta that's not in the omicron. So uh, it's easy to see how you could get from God to who in Greek as it's abbreviated in the manuscripts as opposed to in English, God and who don't seem anything at all alike. And so for this issue, in most of our Bibles, what's going to tip you off that there's something going on here, if you will, the smoke that indicates the fire, is going to be a footnote in your translation. So for example, the New Living Translation, footnote for 1 Timothy 3.16 reads, other manuscripts read God. Or the 
English Standard Version footnote says, some manuscripts, God, others, which. So this footnote that you see in your Bible that probably most of us, if we're honest, just ignore or never even look at in the first place, uh, this, these, are, these are important information for us to know about that is really going to tip you off to what's going on behind the scenes, underneath the surface of translation. So what manuscripts do you think we should look at first? The papyri, right? Because the papyri are earliest New Testament manuscripts. Well, as it turns out, we don't have any papyri that record 1 Timothy 3.16. So then, what would you think would be our second most important place to look for sources of the Greek New Testament? Unseals, right? The unseals are the second grouping of Greek New Testament manuscripts that we have, and we know for sure we have the complete New Testament in multiple unsealed manuscripts, especially and most famously Codex Sinaiticus. So let's start there with Codex Sinaiticus. Now this manuscript comes from the year 350. Its symbol is Aleph. It's a Hebrew letter, kind of looks like an X, and the official number is 01. So what's so fascinating about this manuscript is that we do have the phrase there, oh, it looks like an OC, but it's the word who, and then right above it, by a second hand, a different hand than the original scribe who wrote, we have theta C, which is translated theos, right, the word for God, written above it between the lines. So that's really interesting. So we have the original text itself, and then we have a corrector who has added in uh, what they perceive to be a correction above it. Then we also have Codex Alexandrinus, also called 02 or typically referred to as A, and this one is really tricky because it's very faded where the word occurs, and here it does seem to say God, although we'll come back to, the, to this in a bit, but it's very faded, uh, especially the letter in question is faded, and uh, it's not at all clear if that bar above it, which indicates an abbreviation for a nomen sacrum, if that is original or a later scribe, just by looking at it here in this picture. Then we have Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, manuscript C, unseal C. There are no pictures of this manuscript because it's a palimpsest, if you remember that. Uh, and this was the one that Constantine von Tischendorf very painstakingly deciphered. And this, uh, what I have here is a picture of his transcription of the manuscript. Uh, but nevertheless, we can see very clearly that it's os there. And then moving on to manuscript D, unsealed D, also called 06, Codex Claremontanus. Here we have something that's really, really weird. Um, it, it looks like the word who, but with a bar over it, which makes you think it's actually theos. But um, the line through the Omicron here is, is it seems like it's there, but it, it, it also seems pretty faint, pretty hard to see. And then the Omicron itself and the bar above it both appear to be a different color ink than the second letter. So we're going to come back to that in just a minute, but just pointing that out. Then we have um, Unseal F, Codex Augiensis, 010-010, and this is a parallel Bible. And it comes to us from the year 850. So let me just back up and say our, our dates. So we had the first manuscript, which was from the year 350, that's Aleph. And then we had A, which was from 425. And then C was from 450. D was from 550. So I'm going through time 
as we look at these manuscripts moving out later and later. Now looking at this one here, Augiensis manuscript F, we see that it, from the year 850 it's a parallel manuscript with Latin on the left and Greek on the right and we see here that it is just what appears to be an OC or the word who in English and then on the left it has quod in Latin which is actually the word which not who so go figure and because uh, Greek does have a word which as well and that is one of the variants for this verse but we'll, we'll get back to that in a second and it's just the O by itself or the way Erasmian pronunciation would go is ha or has I'm saying it the way modern Greek people say it so you have to forgive me if it sounds funny to you uh, moving on then you have Codex G right Codex Bornerianus 012 and uh, this is an interlinear codex, which is pretty cool. It comes to us from the year 875, and we have the word who very clearly there, O-C. But uh, then we have the word quote above it in Latin, which is, once again, the word which. And then last of all of the pictures that I want to show is Codex C, uh, also called Codex Athus Lavrensis. 044 comes from the year 900 and I should mention I don't know if I said this before but all these dates are approximate give or take uh, a number of decades but um, this manuscript is pretty interesting it does have the theta sigma so that that would be theos and the theta is extremely large and sort of in the margin and the bar is is pretty interesting too because it, it can't really cover both letters because the first letter is so big those are the manuscripts that are the earliest grouping for 1 Timothy 3.16. Now what I want to do is look at Metzger's textual commentary of the Greek New Testament, the TCGNT, which uh, is actually a very thin book, ironically, considering it contains about the same information as other books that have much more pages in them, but it's just so condensed and compressed. And I'm, I'm not going to be referring to this book too much as we go forward because it does require you to have more of an in-depth knowledge of Greek, but I want you to see what, it, what it's like to read an entry in it. And then what I want to do is take a look at Philip Comfort's book and how he writes and look at both of them on this same verse. And then we'll also look at the Net Bible as well. All right, so this is what Metzger writes in his textual commentary of the Greek New Testament entry for 1 Timothy 3.16. Quote, The reading which, on the basis of external evidence and transcriptional probability, best explains the rise of the others is os, or as Erasmian Greek would pronounce it, has. It is supported by the earliest and best unseals, Aleph, A, C, G, as well as by 33, 365, 442, 2127, the Syriac ancient translation, the Gothic, the Ethiopic, Origen, Epiphanius, Jerome, Theodore, Eutherius, according to Theodoret, Cyril, Cyril, according to Pseudo-Ercuminius, Liberatus. Well, let me pause there. So, the first grouping that Mesker brings up in this is the unseals, Aleph, A, C, and G. Now, you notice, too, that he puts a star next to these different manuscripts, unseal manuscripts. The star indicates the original scribe's writing before others made corrections. So this is very important when we think of, uh, well, we saw it with Sinaiticus. It was clear, right? You had Os right there in the reading and then Theos above it. Uh, but in the second one, Alexandrinus, which I showed you, which is approximately the year 425, early 5th century, 
it, it looked like it said the word God there, but what these scholars are saying is actually the original had os and then a scribe later inserted a bar in the middle of the o and then above the word to correct it to say theos. But then they actually add in another superscript after the star and that's the letters vid. And vid stands for viditor, which is a Latin phrase for appears or appearing. In other words, it seems. It's used to indicate that the reading is not certain, especially in a damaged manuscript. So what we're seeing here is that they're saying, all right, we believe the original Alexandrinus said who and not God, but we're not really sure. So you put that word vid, that abbreviation vid there to indicate that. And then C star is the original before the correction. And then G, he has a superscript GR next to the G. So G, we already uh, mentioned a minute ago, is one of the unseals that we looked at. Uh, the GR stands for Greek. And the reason why they put that superscript there is because it's a parallel Bible. It has Latin on the left and Greek on the right. So they're, they're referring specifically to the Greek side of that unseal. See what I mean by saying Metzger's stuff is so compressed and condensed? Like, you, you really have to know what each of these abbreviations and, and little symbols means or else you're, you're just not going to be able to follow it. His next grouping that we just mentioned, as I read this quote, which sounded like, like just a bunch of numbers, uh, is the minuscules. And how do I know they're minuscules? Well, there's no letters mentioned in them. There's no, there's no P, which stands for the papyrus. Uh, there's no zero out front, which is all, all unseals begin with zero. They're just regular numbers. Regular numbers are reserved for minuscules. Minuscules, uh, we talked about in previous episodes, but here it mentions 33, 365, 442, 21, 27. One, two, three, four. Four different minuscules that also support who as opposed to God as the reading for 1 Timothy 3.16. Then the next thing he covered was ancient translations. So he mentioned the Syriac and then he had these superscripts, H, M, G, and PAL. These are different classifications of Syriac manuscripts. And then we had Goth, which stands for the Gothic ancient translation, and then ETH, Ethiopic, it's another ancient translation. And then he moved to cite sources from the church fathers. These are all church fathers that I mentioned. Origen, Epiphanius, Jerome, Theodore, Eutherius, and so on, Cyril. So these are all church fathers that also, when they quote 1 Timothy 3.16, they quote it as who was manifest in the flesh as opposed to God was manifest in the flesh. Moving on then, furthermore, since, this is once again continuing the quote from Metzger, furthermore, since the neuter relative pronoun O must have arisen as a scribal correction of os to bring the relative into concord with mysterion, that's the word for mystery, the witnesses that read O, D, the Old Italian, the Vulgate, Ambrosiaster, Marius, Victorinus, Hilary, Pelagius, Augustine, also indirectly presuppose os as the earlier reading. The Textus Receptus reads Theos with Aleph superscript E. And so, just a pause here for a second. You have your unseal manuscripts, right? But then you have correctors. And this is totally standard for manuscripts that, that you will see. There's an original, and then either that scribe, him or herself, will enter corrections, or some centuries later, another scribe will come along, and you can tell because the, the second scribe 
writes their letters a little differently. The ink pigment is slightly changed or the, the uh, kind of ink it is is different. And so paleographers and specialists can pick out, all right, they're like, all right, this is the original text, Aleph, Codex Sinaiticus, got it. But then this is corrector A, this is corrector B, this is corrector C, this is corrector D. And so what we're seeing here, Metzger saying, well, corrector E from the 12th century put in the word God right above where it said the word who. Then he goes on, let me just start that sentence again. The Textus Receptus reads Theos with Aleph superscript E, this corrector is of the 12th century, A, corrector number two, C, corrector number two, D, corrector C, KLPC 81, 330, 614, 1739, Bislect, that stands for the Byzantine Lectionary. Gregory Nyssa, that's a church father, Didymus, Chrysostom, Theodoret, Euthalius, and later fathers. Thus, no unseal in the first hand earlier than the 8th or 9th century, Psi, supports Theos, the word God. All ancient versions presuppose Os or O, and no patristic writer prior to the last third of the 4th century testifies to the reading Theos. The reading Theos arose either A, accidentally, through the misreading of Os as Theos, and this is really what we've been talking about the whole time, right? Uh, so that's hypothesis one, is that a scribe just mistakenly thought it should have been Theos when it was really Os, and maybe they thought, oh, this other person who wrote this manuscript that I'm copying from made a mistake, let me correct it. Uh, so that's sort of like an innocent correction. Or B, deliberately, either to supply a substantive for the following six verbs or with less probability to provide greater dogmatic precision. So we have two options. We have accidentally and deliberately. On the deliberately side, either the reason is because of grammar, the scribe was trying to fix the grammar to make it line up better, or the scribe was injecting a theological bias into the manuscript. And it's interesting, Metzger puts that last as the least likely scenario. However, Philip Comfort puts that as a much higher possibility. This is what Philip Comfort writes. Few textual problems generated so much stir and controversy in the 19th century as this one did. Many scholars entered the debate, and not without good reason, inasmuch as this verse is related to the doctrine of the Incarnation. When reading in TR and KJV, that stands for Textus Receptus and King James Version, God was manifest in the flesh, was challenged by another reading, He who was manifest in the flesh. Some thought the doctrine of God becoming man was being undermined. Not so. The scholars who defended the reading with Os, he who, primarily did so because they realized that the second reading was clearly an emendation. This is a word I've used a couple of times, but it just means correction. The original scribes of Aleph, A, and C wrote Os, which was then changed by later scribes in all three manuscripts to Theos, the word for God. The original scribe of D wrote O, or which, which was also then corrected to Theos, God. Scholars have conjectured that some scribes mistook the word os for theos, the nomen sacrum for theos, but it is difficult to imagine how several 4th and 5th century scribes who had seen thousands of nomen sacra, those are the abbreviations, would have made this mistake. It is more likely, Comfort continues, that the change was motivated by a desire to make the text say that it was God who was manifest in the flesh, 
But in the original text, the subject of the verse is simply who, which most translators render as he, and which most commentators identify as Christ. All English versions since the ASV have reflected the superior text and most show the variance in marginal notes. So we have a variety of opinions here, right? On the one hand, you have Metzger and Metzger saying, look, I think it was, I think it was an accident or if it was on purpose, it was to fix the grammar. And then you have Comfort saying, I don't think it was an accident. I don't think it was to fix the grammar. I think it was because of theological bias and they wanted the Bible to say God was manifest in the flesh, even though it actually says who was manifest in the flesh or he who was manifest in the flesh, as a lot of translations have it. So uh, regardless of the scribe's motivations, obviously we don't have the scribe here to interrogate. The facts are the facts. The oldest and best manuscripts say who, and so that's what our translations overwhelmingly say today, with the exception of the King James Version and the New King James Version. I think just about every other translation is going to say who or he who, or maybe some of your more flexible translations will say Christ. They'll substitute in the word Christ. So that's really a moment, I hope, for you where, you where you saw things coming together as far as like, all right, why were we talking about the desert in Egypt and Oxyrhynchus and all this? It's like, well, this, is all, this all comes together because when it, we try to figure out what is the correct reading of the New Testament, we look at all this evidence and we weigh it all out and then we weigh out the external considerations and the internal considerations and we arrive at a conclusion. So this brings me to a really important point and it's not really germane to this class in general, but it is germane to this particular uh, corruption. And that is that doctrine should never determine the text of Scripture. That's the wrong way around. The text of Scripture should determine doctrine. The way it typically works is you have the text of Scripture, and then you have a translation, and then you have interpretation based on that translation, and then you, you work together all your different interpretations into a, a synthetic doctrine that you can you know, hold, hold in mind as you, as you walk out your Christian life or as you teach others or whatever. But if, the, if for doctrine to determine the text is for the tail to wag the dog, it's just the wrong way around. The text needs to determine the doctrine. On to our second text. This will be a little bit quicker. This is 1 John 5, 7. I've got it for you here in the King James Version as well as, once again, the American Standard Version. On the King James side, it reads, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Whereas the ASV reads, for verse 8, uh, they changed the verse there from verse uh, 7 to verse 8. That's uh, beside the point. But this is the same text. For there are three who bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three agree in one. This whole phrase here, is what scholars refer to as the comma Johannium. It's the phrase of John. And uh, it's the phrase that reads, in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth. That exact phrase is what we refer to as the comma Johannium. Now let's take a look at the manuscript evidence. Here are four manuscripts, 221, 88, 429, and 636. They date from anywhere from the 10th to the 16th century, but none of them contains the Comma Johannium in its main text. Neither do any early manuscripts. But 
These manuscripts, 221, 88, 429, and 636, do contain the common Johannium in the margin of the manuscript. But once again, like I mentioned before, this is from a later scribe, a later corrector who said, oh, you guys forgot something. Let me write it in the margin here so that in subsequent copying, they can insert this in. Look, they didn't have erasers. They didn't have computers. This is how they did things. And so we get these marginal notes added in in the 15th and especially 16th century. Most of them uh, come in from the 16th century. And then we do have a number of manuscripts, at least four, that have the Common Johannium in the main text of the uh, scripture, 1 John 5. And that is Codex Autobanianus from the 14th or 15th century, Codex Montfortianus from the 16th century, number 918 and number 2318. Actually, all four of them are minuscules, as were the previous ones that I mentioned. These are also minuscules. But let's take a look at Autobanianus so you can see what it looks like. It's a parallel Bible with on the left you have the Latin, on the right you have the Greek. It's actually really difficult to read even if you know Latin and even if you know Greek just because of the style of writing. But it does contain the three heavenly witnesses passage, also called the Kama Jehanium, where it talks about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Alright, so we have these different codices. They're all very late from the 15th, 16th, and 18th centuries that have this in this text. But then all of our earlier manuscripts do not have it in the text. What happened? It seems like something happened in the 16th century. Think of it like a crime scene. You know, the, the question is who did it? Why did, why did he or she do it? What was the situation going on? What were the motives for this change in the biblical manuscripts. Like I said before, and I don't want to show you all the data because it's just too overwhelming. No early manuscripts, none of the papyri, none of the unseals contain the Kama Johannium. It's just not there. So there's, there's nothing for me to show you. It's just going to say over and over the same thing that it's not there. It's just these four later manuscripts that contain it, starting with the 14th or 15th century from a parallel Latin Greek Bible. So, but we don't have to guess because we actually know. This is, this is not a mystery. We know exactly what happened. Do you remember back when I was telling you the history of textual criticism? About two episodes ago, we talked about Desiderius Erasmus, who rushed into print his 1516 Greek New Testament to beat Jimenez, who was putting out his Complutensian polyglot. Desiderius Erasmus did not include the Kama Jehanium this extra phrase, in his 1516 edition. And people noticed it, and they were concerned, and they asked Erasmus, why in the world did you take this section out of Scripture? Are you, are you questioning the Trinity? Because this is a verse that is commonly, at that time, was commonly used to prove the Trinity. Erasmus didn't have the text in the Greek, so what was he going to do? He, it just wasn't there. Did, did, did they want him just to make it up and, and put it in? It, it wasn't in any, any of the manuscripts that he had access to. And furthermore, the old Latin, I know that at the time of Rasmus, 16th century, the Vulgate of that time did have the Kama Johannium, but the old uh, Vulgate of Jerome that he originally did did not have it in it. So, so somehow or other, the, these extra words crept into the manuscript tradition in the Latin translation of the Vulgate, Sometime in the Middle Ages, they become 
traditional and beloved and commonly understood by the time of the 16th century when Erasmus printed his Greek New Testament, and he didn't find them in a Greek manuscript, so he did the honest thing, and he, he printed it without them. And as a result of that, people accused him of heresy. Now look, if you accuse me of heresy, it's just like a word, right? I mean, I might lose friends or job opportunities, but it's, it's, just, it's just a word. In the 16th century, the word heresy is not just a word, it is a threat. Because if you're convicted of heresy, you could be burned at the stake. You know, so when people started accusing Erasmus of heresy, he had to respond or else risk his life. And so what he said was the following. If a single manuscript, this is a quote from Erasmus himself, if a single manuscript had come into my hands in which stood what we read, then I would certainly have used it to fill in what was missing in the other manuscripts I had. Because that did not happen, I have taken the only course which was permissible. That is, I have indicated what was missing from the Greek manuscripts. So even in Erasmus's second edition, which I believe is 1519, so you have original 1516, then you have 1519, no common Jehanium. But then, as it turns out, he was presented with a mysterious Greek manuscript on which the ink was still barely dry. Uh, and this manuscript, Codex Montfortianus, was given to Erasmus, and indeed it did contain the Kama Jehanium in the text. However, I want to point something out to you ever so quickly here. Uh, this is it right here. What, I, what I'm circling here is where it says, Father, Word, and Spirit Holy, is an English translation of that. Now, if any of you know about Latin, if any of you were required to take Latin at some time in your life, you know that the Latin language does not have the definite article, the word for the. However, Greek just absolutely loves the definite article. We use the definite article in English to refer to something specific, something definite, right? This is the book stand of which I speak. That's how we use the definite article. In Greek, they have multiple more levels of usage that would, I'm, I'm sure I would bore you if I explain in detail here. But Greek just is just like overamped with the definite article. Latin doesn't have it at all. So what we see here is all three, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, without the definite article, which is totally weird because if this was really a Greek reading, you would see the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit. But what happened with this manuscript is some scribe was working from a Latin text, which didn't have the definite article because it doesn't exist in Latin, and back translated it into Greek and then shoved it in front of Erasmus and said, here, it's in the Greek. So what did Erasmus do? He did the only thing he could do. He put it into the text in his 1522 edition. He had put out this, in a sense, a dare. If you show me one manuscript, I'll put it, well, they made a manuscript in the 16th century, and they handed it to him. They say, there it is, put it in. So he did, he put it in. And that's the tragedy of the whole thing, isn't it? Because the 1522 edition of Erasmus's Greek New Testament is what William Tyndale used for his English translation, and that's how these extra words ended up in our old English translations from the 1500s and then into the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s until it was finally removed, in America at least, in 1901 
in the American Standard Version, as I showed you earlier. So what, what's going on here? Let's read this note from the NET. Quote, there is no sure evidence of this reading in any Greek manuscript until the 14th century, manuscript 629. And that manuscript deviates from all others in its wording. The wording that matches what is found in the Textus Receptus was apparently composed after Erasmus's Greek New Testament was published in 1516. The reading seems to have arisen in a 4th century Latin homily, that's like a sermon, in which the text was allegorized to refer to members of the Trinity. From there, it made it into the copies of the Latin Vulgate, the text used by the Roman Catholic Church. The Trinitarian formula, known as the Common Jehanium, made its way into the third edition of Erasmus's Greek New Testament in 1522 because of pressure from the Catholic Church. Erasmus himself was a Catholic. How can one argue that the Common Johannium goes back to the original text, yet does not appear until the 14th century in any Greek manuscripts that the form is significantly different from the one is printed in the Textus Receptus? The wording of the Textus Receptus is not found in any Greek manuscript until the 16th century. Such a stance does not do justice to the Gospel. Faith must be rooted in history. I really love that phrase at the end there. Faith must be rooted in history. Look, there's a difference between uh, loving the Bible and loving what somebody has corrupted or added into the Bible that wasn't originally there. And the question is, what do you want? Do you want what is comfortable or what is authentic? For me, I want both. I would love to, <laughs> I would love to be comfortable with what's authentic. But if that's ever going to happen for us, we have to be willing to face the facts of the matter, the facts of history. So in conclusion, today we looked at two corruptions in the New Testament. Thankfully, translators have removed them from pretty much all translations done from the 20th century forward. Next time we'll look at two more corruptions, although these two are uncorrected. In fact, I bet the Bible that you have at home, whether you have a digital Bible or a print Bible, I bet these two that we're going to look at next time are both printed in your translation, even though scholars know that they were not in the earliest manuscripts. So stay tuned for that next time as we continue our quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for today. What'd you think? Had you already known that these two scriptures were corrupted and restored to their older forms? Had you ever noticed Anything in the footnotes of your Bible for 1 Timothy 3.16 or 1 John 5.7? Were you raised on the King James Version like I was and just took for granted that these verses were different than they turned out to be? Would love to hear from you. Come on to restitutio.org and drop a comment on episode 340, part 11 of the Bible class, Two Corrupted Corruptions, and uh, ask your question or make your comment known there. Would love to hear from you. Also, if you have been enjoying this class, uh, please share it with your friends. Let them know about this class. I think this material going forward is going to be progressively more relevant and interesting to people. Not that the other episodes weren't important. I think they built a foundation that I can now build upon. Uh, but I definitely think next episode is going to raise some eyebrows and uh, some episodes that I have planned for maybe in a couple weeks from now where we get into the subject of translation bias 
is really going to be of interest to many people. So anyhow, if you don't mind, please share this episode on whatever social media you use. Uh, Rest Studio is on Twitter and on Facebook and online as well. Stop on over to reststudio.org if you'd like to support this work, and we'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.